Turn with me, if you will, in God's Word uh, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to be reading the first 23 verses. I'm going to read them all together this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23, probably a familiar passage to many, the record of what is commonly called the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples and the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper, the communion meal. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 881. Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God is eternal and it abides forever and it is worthy of our undivided attention. Let us give it that as we hear it read. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So ends the reading of our God's word to us this morning. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Your word, our Lord, is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide through the darkness. Your word is wisdom and truth, ours to follow every day. And it is indeed sweeter than honey and yet somehow sharper than swords. Your word is healing and it is justice and it is ours to obey. It is our understanding of your grace and your peace and your love. 
And these are the reasons why we draw near to it today, so that you might speak to us through it. Be with us, guide us, open our ears, open our hearts, we ask, through Christ our Savior. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. is about the Lord's Supper, and the Supper is indeed, without a doubt, a major part of the Christian church and the Christian life. Uh, It's known by different names. It's sometimes called communion uh, or the Lord's Supper, uh, historically often called the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving because Jesus gave thanks as she shared it with his disciples, and it is dear to our hearts. Now, if you bring it up with fellow Christians, it might uh, elicit some strong emotions and very possibly uh, some debates. Uh, We like to debate what it means that the bread and the wine are his body and blood. We like to debate uh, how often we should partake of it. Uh, It was, it's just a part of our life, a part of our culture, a part of our church. And it was instituted on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And that's what our passage records for us this morning. And and as we make our way through our passage, I want us to look at at three things, really, this morning. And the first is the Passover itself, which was first instituted in Exodus 12 and serves as the context uh, and the setting in which the Lord's Supper was first instituted. So we're going to look at the Passover and the background. And then I want to look at the Lordship of Jesus, which clearly comes out in our passage, his lordship, what, it, what that means. And then finally, and I would say most importantly, I want to look at and meditate upon the love of Jesus, which the Lord's Supper is uniquely meant to communicate to us, his love which really ought to come out as we understand what the supper is. And so my hope is that it will become clear that that when we come to the Lord's Supper, our Lord meets us there. Our Lord meets us each week at his table and reminds us that those who belong to him are heirs of heaven. And he assures us of his love. He he can, can communicates that to us each week at the Lord's table. That's what I want to show you this morning as we uh, unpack this passage. Now I said that uh, the Passover is something we need to understand. We can't understand the Lord's Supper if we don't understand the Passover. Uh, The Passover is uh, a Jewish feast Uh, that they they had annually, and it's at the Passover that Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper. And as we're going to see this morning, that was no coincidence. Jesus was waiting for the Passover to fulfill all these things. And so what was it? What was the Passover? Well, it was the meal that Israel first celebrated the night that God led them out of slavery in Egypt when they were being oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The Israelites had been living in Egypt for about four centuries. And while at the beginning they had occupied a place of prominence and even power, uh, that had since faded and they had become enslaved 
and oppressed. And in fact, many, especially their infants, had been murdered. We remember that the persecution of the, of the Israelites when, when Pharaoh demanded that the male infants would be slaughtered in the early days of Moses. Things eventually reached a climax, and, and so God raised up Moses to confront Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so nine times, Moses went to Pharaoh, demanding that he let the people go. Nine times he followed up those demands with with plagues of increasing intensity. And nine times, Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And finally, God said, enough is enough. Death is coming. And so on an appointed night, God said he would send his angel through the land of Egypt to strike the firstborn of every household. But for God's people, he said he would provide a substitute. They they could sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost of their home. And that lamb would be received and accepted as a substitute for their firstborn. The message to the angel as he passed through the land of Egypt would be, this house is protected, pass over it and leave the firstborn alone. But for the Egyptians, there was no substitute. For the Egyptians, there was no sacrifice, there was no lamb. And for them, that night would mean death and judgment. A night that meant Redemption and life for God's children would mean judgment and death for Israel, God's enemy. There would be no mistaking God's power that night. And yet that night was, was not the end of it. It was really just the beginning. That night, that that. That meal and, and, and the redemption and the, and, the, and the deliverance that followed, it would become the defining moment in Israel's history. That was the night that they became a kingdom people. It, it didn't, and it didn't just define that generation. It defined all generations to come. And so long after that generation passed away, God would continue to tell his people that he was the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We hear it every week in the reading of the law. That was how God identified himself to God's people. And it was for this reason that every year they were to continue to to celebrate the Passover. God told them as a memorial. A memorial is, is more than just remembering. It's, it's usually a, a, something physical that's meant to teach future generations that, they were re, that, that what happened in the past is their history, their reality. And so it was meant to teach future generations that they were redeemed that day every bit as much as their grandparents were. That it was their history, their redemption, that in God's eyes, they were there yet still unborn. It's much the way that we can visit our, our national memorials and say, this is the day, we, you know, this is to remember what happened to us in the Revolutionary War, or what happened to us in, the, in World War II, and so on. Even though many of us weren't born yet. Every year, God met his people in that meal. 
And he assured them that he was their God. And that he was with them. And that he was there to guard and to protect and to guide them. To remind his people that they were not alone in this world. That though they could not see God, that he was with them as surely as as he was on the night that he brought them out of Egypt. He was with them as surely as the food on their table was with them. And when our text says that, that the Passover was approaching, this is the history. This is the context that stood behind that. And there are two key aspects to that history that Jesus picks up on in our passage that I want to draw out. And the first is lordship. Lordship is, is a way of saying uh, he's lord, he's master, he's ruler. As I said earlier, uh, this meal is often called different things over the years. But one of the most common is the Lord's Supper. And this comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 11.20. But what's really interesting is if you, if you look at the original language in which that was written, the word translated lords isn't a possessive. It's actually an adjective. Parents, if you don't know what that means, ask your kids. But it means it's, it's the, the supper of lordship. Which is awkward, and you can see why it's translated as a possessive. But you could call it the Lordship Supper, or the Dominion Meal, or the Dominion Supper. That's how it's actually defined. In other words, it's impossible to understand this meal and not see the Lordship of Jesus Christ expressed in it. And and, and of course, we, we would ask, how could it be any other way? Because it finds its origin in the night when God conquered the most powerful nation on earth. When he demonstrated his power, his authority, his lordship. And so as we look at our passage this morning, we see Jesus' lordship shown in a few different ways. The first is in his knowledge of the future. You have to love that as as the time for the feast draws near, he sends two of his disciples ahead to make preparations. And he tells them, when you walk into the city, you'll find a man carrying a jar of water. Okay, that's pretty specific. And then you're to follow that man, and he'll, he'll bring you to a house, and you can ask the master of that house where the upper room is, and it will already be prepared, and just tell him I have need of it for the Passover with my disciples. And sure enough, everything happened exactly as he said it would. And that demonstrates Jesus' knowledge and even control and power over the future, his ability to guide people without talking to them. And he demonstrates that he is Lord over time, and Lord over the hearts of man. He is the God of the Passover. And that authority is demonstrated in a second way. In verses 14 through 20, Jesus changes the way the Passover was to be observed moving forward. He took bread and he took wine and he shared that with his disciples in verses 17 through 20. And there's nothing shocking about this because these both were used in the Passover meal. But did you notice what's missing? The most important part. There's no lamb. Or is there? Taking the bread and the wine, Jesus says that they represent not some lamb shed in their place. They represent him. 
that Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the one who will die to spare his people from judgment, the very judgment they deserve. He's the one who will die for the forgiveness of their sins. Moving forward from this day on, the meal, the Passover, would be observed without a lamb. And this is a beautiful statement, but it's a bold statement because he's saying that the Passover, the most important meal in Israel's history and life and worship, has always been about him. And so he reconstitutes this meal to reflect that reality. Jesus Jesus takes the most sacred thing in Israel's yearly practice And he says, I have the authority to change it. He is either the God of Israel, the Lord and King of creation, or he is the greatest villain in Israel's history. It takes a lot of authority to do that. And that authority is shown in one final way in our passage. Wrapped up in our passage is a story of conflict. (laughs) And we think, well, how could it be any other way? The Passover was born out of conflict. But here the conflict in our passage isn't between Jesus and the Egyptians or some other Gentile nation. The conflict is with the very leaders of Israel who are told are seeking to put Jesus to death, but to do it secretly because they feared the people. And then Jesus allows one of his own, one of the twelve, to be be taken over by temptation and and sin. Judas, whose name becomes synonymous with betrayal, sought out those who wanted to kill Jesus and he offered his help. Now we don't know all of what drove that. But he told them, that he would be willing to lead them to Jesus in secret. And they were only too happy to pay him for his services. And while the disciples didn't know what was going on, none of this was lost on Jesus. He knew exactly what was happening. Indeed, he tells us in verse 22 that it happened according to the predetermined plan. And yet there sat Judas at the table with Jesus, and he partook of the bread and the wine. But for him, the meal was not a source of comfort and joy and assurance. Instead, Jesus pronounced upon him a woe, a a curse, a judgment. And as Judas took that bread and he took that wine, he was eating and he was drinking judgment unto himself. And the authority of Jesus over his enemies was once again demonstrated as it had been that first night of the Passover so many years before. There are some over throughout the history of the church who come to this table arrogantly. They hold on to their sin. They hold on to their their antagonism towards God. And they think, I'll eat the bread, I'll drink the wine, God will have to give me mercy and grace. But 
Those who think that they can manipulate God into forgiving their sin will find a God who cannot be controlled. Those who come to his table seeking to conquer him come to the meal like Egyptians, like the scribes, like the chief priests, like Judah. I'm sorry, Judah. Judas. And that's a sober reminder. His lordship is ever present when this meal is observed. But we don't want that reality to swallow this meal. We need to talk about it. We need to acknowledge it. It's a very real aspect, but it's not the most important aspect of this meal. It's not why he gave it to his church. There's another aspect that we we want to keep central, and that's the love that he demonstrated in giving this meal to his disciples and to the church. Because the love of Jesus for his people, for us, oozes out of every nook and cranny of this passage. After Judas goes off to make his alliance with the enemies, after Peter and John go and they make their preparations, once he finally sits down at the table with his disciples, the first thing he says to them is, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've been longing for this. I've been waiting for this. Jesus hasn't been dreading this. He's right where he wants to be, sharing a meal with his closest friends. Because a meal is a sign of fellowship and love. And that would be enough. But he doesn't simply say, I've earnestly desired to share a meal with you before I suffer. He says he longed for the Passover. And not just any Passover, this Passover, he says. He's wanted to reveal everything to his disciples in this context, and now he finally can. The Passover is all about God's love. That's what it was about, the the night God rescued his people. That was what the night when he delivered them out of bondage and slavery was all about. That's what the night was about when he showed his people what happens to those who would mistreat those he loves. And so the Passover would become the emblem of God's love for his people. He would forever be known as the God who brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The God who who delivers and protects and cares for his people. But this Passover is even more special, Jesus says. Because this is the Passover that every Passover has been anticipating since the night God led his people out of Egypt. This is the night when God would provide a substitute for the substitute. When he himself would take the place of the lamb. And it could be no other way. Because something that has been clear since the beginning is that God's people are just as sinful as God's enemies. That they deserve wrath and judgment every bit as much as everyone else. That the wages of sin is death. That a price must be paid. And a lamb is no substitute 
God can't accept a mere animal in the place of someone who bears his image. The life of a lamb, beloved, is not worth your life. Something more was needed. We've known it's coming. Jesus' cousin, John, let us know. When Jesus approached, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this final night with his disciples was the night when Jesus would declare, Yes, that he is the true Lamb, the true Passover sacrifice, who can restore peace between God and sinners, who can rescue sinners from slavery, from death, who can redeem and save God's people. And he does so willingly. Look at what he says in verse 19. This is my body which is given for you. He says, I give my life for you. You are more important to me than my own life. If my life is the cost of saving yours, then I give it willingly and gladly. That's love. And then of the wine, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And this is a reference to a promise God made through the prophet Jeremiah years before. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that they broke. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The only way for God to save his people is to forgive their sins. And the cost of forgiveness is his own blood, his own life. This is what the bread and the wine represent. And they do more than represent. They do more than remind. I know it says, do this in remembrance of me in verse 19, but it's actually the same language taken from Exodus chapter 12. The word there is actually memorial. Jesus really says, do this as my memorial. And that's more than just remembering. It was meant to teach future generations that they were redeemed that day every bit as much as the disciples who were there. That this is our history. This is our redemption. That in God's eyes, we though yet unborn were at that table and at the cross with him. And so every week, God meets us in, at this meal. And he assures us that he is our God and we are his people. That he is with us to, to guard us and to protect us and to guide us. That we're not alone in this world. And that though we can't see God, that he is, he is with us as surely as he sat at that table with his disciples that night. And as surely as we can see the bread and wine before us. I hope you heard the call to worship this morning out of Hebrews chapter 12. Because it describes what happens every week as we gather in worship. It says that we are gathered into his presence. 
That we meet God who is the judge of all. And that we meet with Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Whose blood speaks forgiveness. And we have to ask, how does that take place? Well, one of the things it says is that we meet angels in festal garments. In other words, they're preparing a feast for us. Now, the substance is Jesus. We feed on Jesus. We feed on all that he's done for us. He gives us life. But that reality is made visible for us in the Lord's Supper. And we're told that Jesus eats with us and assures us of all of these things. In our passage, he told his disciples that he would not eat this meal with them again until he did so in the kingdom. And that's what Hebrews says we do when we gather. Hebrews says, let us offer worship to God that is acceptable because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, while that kingdom of God will be fully revealed on the last day, we experience its blessings most clearly when we gather for worship. That's why we come. To meet our God. To meet our Savior. To taste of His kingdom. And that's why we eat. And that's why we drink. In some ways, our our passage records Jesus' last supper with His disciples. But in another way, it was just the first of many to come. Because he continues to eat with his disciples every Sunday in his kingdom as we're gathered into his presence with our God and our Savior. It's at this table that our Lord communes with us so that we might learn to believe these things and that we might learn to be confident of his love toward us. And so I'd like to ask uh, Pastor Isaac and the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. And please pray with me. Our wonderful God, we, we thank you for the gift of this meal. And more important than that, we thank you for all it represents and communicates. Your power, your authority, your love, your mercy and your eagerness to be with us, to redeem us, and to call us your own. And so we thank you for meeting us each week in your word and at your table. Help us to appreciate what it means to be guests of the King of Heaven, to be loved, protected, provided for, and guided. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. Amen.